You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany Sermon Series, Finding God, Seeing Christ in the Darkness. As we enter the darkest, coldest period of the year, we remember the cold, dark period when ancient Israel waited for a deliverer who would free them from oppression. We ask, where is our hope? And how do we see him in a world that still seems gripped by the forces of darkness and decay? And we'll discover together that darkness cannot overcome the light. Now hear the word of the Lord. One day, Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses. Here I am, Moses replied. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, sojourn. Peace be with you. It is good to see you guys. Uh, Welcome. My name is Joan. I'm one of the pastors. My microphone exploded in the first service, so now I feel like a charismatic Pentecostal preacher got my hand held. Who knows what's going to happen? Who knows? I don't know. We'll see. Uh, So each week of Advent, the season we're in right now, anticipating Christmas, we're going to look at a passage considering ways God has revealed himself to us. If we want to find God, we have to know who we're looking for. And so we're going to these real poignant stories in the scriptures where God has shown us who he is and, and what he's like. Last week, we saw the story of Jacob and sleeping in the middle of nowhere with his head on a stone and that God reveals himself as being a God with us. He's not like other gods that demand performance or pilgrimage, that demand we climb up a mountain for him. He's a God that comes down to draw near to us. It's important that we press on that idea of nearness a little bit further, though, because nearness is not always a good thing. Right now, um, it's not good news if someone with COVID-19 draws near to you, right? We're not going to be excited about that. It's not a good thing to be near an abusive spouse or parent. It's not a good thing when those who abuse their authority to inflict harm on us draw near. It's not good news when those who seek to oppress draw near to us. This morning, Hannah read for us one of the the most famous stories in the whole Bible. It crosses religion and cultures. You can go almost anywhere in the world and say, how did Moses meet God? Or tell me the story of the burning bush, and someone will have some kind of idea of it. And I think it's one of the most poignant pictures we get in the whole Bible of what God is like. And I love the context of it. It comes in verse 1. It says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. We get a couple of themes that continue from last week's sermon on Jacob. 
God meets a particular person. He meets this man named Moses in a particular place. We get details about where the place is, and he meets him by particular grace. And and maybe the grace part isn't as obvious to you. Uh, Some of you may know why Moses is out here tending the flocks of his father Jethro anyway. He's on the run from Egypt, and so he's not exactly an innocent man at this point in his life, but but the grace goes further than that. He's basically at work. He's tending sheep. Hey, y'all, probably not. Tending sheep isn't the most exciting. I had a conversation with myself there. I was like, any of y'all ever tended sheep before? And I'm guessing most of us have not. It is not necessarily adrenaline-inducing work. You basically are sitting there watching sheep eat. So Moses is out in the middle of nowhere, basically just going at his job. There's nothing special about this day. It's not as though Moses woke up that morning and prayed the prayer of Jabez. <laughs> I don't know why that came by. Y'all remember that? It's not like he found this secret prayer that was given from the secret messenger, and he did this and conjured up the presence of the Lord. He's just going about his normal, boring life, and then God shows up. This is a, this is a picture of, dra- of grace. Nothing special about the day or what Moses is up to, but then God draws near. Some more interesting details here. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that the bush was on fire. It didn't burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. I love how matter of fact the Bible is about this. Moses is out in the middle of nowhere. He sees a bush on fire. He's like, it's not burning up. I'm going to check that thing out. (laughs) So what does this reveal to us about God? A couple of big things. Um, First, you need to know that the angel of the Lord that's mentioned here, and it's mentioned in most translations, this isn't a normal angel. Uh, The word angel in English, it just sounds like the word the Bible uses in the original language for angel. It just means messenger. The word means messenger. And so God will send messengers to give people messages. That was intense. Uh, But all that, that word messenger, angel, it just sounds like another language's word for messenger. That's not what we get here. We get the angel of the Lord. This is someone different. And as you see, as the story continues, he speaks with the first person, And the scriptures will say, and God said, this is God himself speaking. If you go search the Old Testament for all the times this phrase, the angel of the Lord shows up, this is something different. This is not just a normal angel. This is the very presence of God himself. God is coming again to a specific person in a specific place, living in exile, and he shows up in a very bizarre way. A bush that's on fire, but the bush is not getting burned up. This is God revealing himself to be self-sufficient. And sometimes when we think of self-sufficiency, maybe you think about a grown child who can pay their own bills. Or, you know, what's a phrase we use sometimes? A productive member of society. uh, Someone who's carrying their own load. But the idea of God being self-sufficient is far beyond that. Um, Some of you know me well enough to know what Sunday afternoons are like for me. I will go home after this. I will wrap up in a blanket. I will spiral into a deep depression. I will try not to talk to any humans for four to six hours. And then I will go and spend most of the day tomorrow by myself. Why is that? Do you have a mental health disorder? Well, there's been all kinds of studies about this. And essentially, after preaching sermons, universally, preachers have this huge adrenaline crash. And it doesn't matter how well it went or how nice you guys were about it. This is like an emotionally charged deal for preachers. And we just feel horrible afterwards. And so what do we do? Well, you need to take a nap. 
You need to eat some food. You need to be quiet. Why? Because I have real needs that need to be met in order to feel better. Uh, maybe you've experienced the joy of moving and you get to a point where you're like, I'm out of energy and I cannot do this anymore. Or maybe just try to stay up for two days in a row and you will say something wild like, I'm sleepy. These are all evidences that we need stuff. We need to sleep. We need to eat. We need to drink because we have limitations. Even if you pay all of your own bills, at some point you will eat, reach the end of your rope and you won't be able to keep going. But God is not this way. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't get sleepy. He doesn't get hungry. Uh, in the world of theologians and philosophers, they would call God a non-contingent being. You and I are contingent on food, shelter, water, clothing, all this kind of stuff. God needs nothing to be God. God himself is all he needs to be all that he is. He's self-generating. He is self-determined. He doesn't need input or guidance. He doesn't need any fuel. And so that's all wrapped up being revealed in this bush that's on fire that's consuming fuel but not being consumed. We don't have any categories for fire that can burn without burning something up. This is God in a visible, tangible way showing us that he fuels himself. He continues to go and he needs nothing. Now, if that's all we know about God or if that's all that's being revealed here, this should an appropriate response to this would be a mild degree of terror. A God who needs nothing, who requires nothing, who's dependent on nothing, has now shown up to this guy who's living in exile. What's he going to say to me? What will this kind of God demand of me, and what would it matter? You ever thought about if God was a total tyrant, what bad shape we would be in? He could just say anything, and it would have to go. What kind of God would show up? Him being self-sustaining isn't good news in and of itself. So look at what he says to Moses. Verse 4, it begins. When the Lord saw that he, that's Moses, had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush. I love this. Moses. Moses. Is that Moses? That's Moses going for the stage. I love it. I love it. Come on, Mom. We're going to look back on these years and laugh and miss it. He's someday going to be hairy and in college and stuff. And wish he was just running around in the auditorium. What I love about that not about that Moses, but the Bible Moses, is that God sees Moses and he calls Moses by his name. He doesn't, he doesn't indict him. He doesn't label him. He calls him by his name. God draws near with unquenchable fire and he calls this man by his name. Then God tells him something that's completely new in the Bible story up to this point. Verse 5, he says, take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. This is the first time in the Bible something is said to be holy. Not just God is going to make something holy. So you, maybe you think of the seventh day in creation. It says God made it holy. This is the first time something is said to be holy. And from this point forward, you'll see lots of things get declared holy. But this is entirely new at this point. So God is drawing near to a man, calling him by name, and he's initiating something entirely new. Moses learns this is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And he's rightly terrified. This is all very new. No one Moses didn't know the story. He's living it for the first time. And so listen to what the Lord says next. In response to all of Moses' fear, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering. 
So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So just try to imagine the story for a second. Moses has to be carrying some degree of guilt and fear because of where he's living and why he's living there. And then a bush is on fire and it's not burning up. And that's a little bit strange and scary. And then the bush speaks to him by name and says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses doesn't even want to look at the bush because he doesn't want to look at God. And then God essentially says to him, I know how hard your life is. I know the suffering of your people. Not only do I know your name, but I know your pain. What a radically different message than Moses was likely expecting. God draws near to us with an awareness of what we've been through, an awareness of what we're going through, and what's more, he promises a solution to their pain. This is good news. God knows us by name. He knows our pain. And he promises to set us free from that pain. One of my concerns as I look at our church and most of the Christians I know is we're content to stop there. We're content for God who knows us and promises us that he will make it better. In other words, most of us think the big problem in our life is circumstantial. And so what we need in our life is a change in circumstances. So we ask God, we cry out, God, change this. God, change this. God, do this for me. And once that happens, then everything will be all right. Some of you crazy Christians have read the Bible, and you know what happens from here on out. God sends Moses to Egypt, and Moses goes, and ten plagues come, and the people of Israel are miraculously led to salvation outside of Egypt. They're, they're delivered from Egypt, and the joy of their salvation lasts a couple of days. These people who were protected by a pillar of fire, who saw a sea parted, and they crossed through with safety, who saw the miraculous deliverance of God, Within a few days out of Egypt, they're looking back, despite all of the miracles, despite the overwhelming firepower of the Lord, and they say, you know, slavery wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. And they start longing to go back. What's the point here? So many of us are chasing this spiritual high or these unbelievable circumstances, and if the Lord would just part the oceans, if he would just break open the skies and do something incredible, then I would believe. And I would just say, no, you wouldn't. You would believe for a day or two. You would believe for a little while, and then you would start reminiscing about the brokenness of that life that was before. Too many of us believe if our circumstances changed, we would change. But a change in circumstances is not enough. It's not enough to change who we are. It's not enough to settle our souls. The story of the burning bush ends with something that's, um, this is debatable. This is just what I think this morning, that I think it ends with something that is even more wonderful and profound than the story of Exodus as a whole, the deliverance from Egypt. Moses, in his fear, wants to know who is sending him? I think it shows some of the irrational scatteredness Moses has going on here. I'm going to go to the most powerful person in the world and demand he lets all of his slaves go. And what's the big question he has for God? Well, who should I say sent me? <laughs> like, really, the name of the one who sends you? That's the big question you have of everything that's about to happen? You want to know the name of the person who sent you? In essence, he said, you know my name, I guess. 
but I don't know your name. See, you, you can be known, and even your pain can be known by another, but if you do not know the other person's name, you cannot be in a relationship with them. Relationships require mutual knowledge. They require mutual vulnerability, a participation in the life of another. This is why God says this ground is holy, that it's set apart, and that it's different, because something new is going to happen here. Here at the burning bush, God is initiating a new relationship with his people, one that isn't just made up by promises, but God will give his people his name. You will know my true name. You will know who I am. And so God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I would argue this is one of the most profound and confusing verses in the entire Bible. Who should I say sent me? Tell them I exist sent me. What's your name, God? I am who I am. That's a strange name. I don't mean to be irreverent here, but <laughs> it's not like God said, tell them Phil sent you. It's I am sent me. What in the world does this mean? And you guys, the amount of debate over what is going on here, it's hard to put into words. Some people think that a better, a more accurate, helpful translation of this would be, tell them I will be who I will be sent you. And that doesn't clear it up a whole lot for me. Should it be I am? They argue, is it a present tense verb or is it a future tense verb? Uh, the name given here, it, you know, in some ways it it reaffirms that idea of God's self-sufficiency. I am that I am. I need nothing. Um, but if you, if you press in, it's, it's just as strange. It's four letters in Hebrew. And here's something maybe you don't know about Hebrew. When, when this was written, when the Old Testament was written, Hebrew Jews, they didn't put vowels in their words. Uh, it was an oral culture, and so they didn't write down their vowels for a long time. So we have four Hebrew consonants, and there's all kinds of debate about which vowels are intended to go there or not. There's all kinds of debate about whether or not we should say the name out loud at all. There's, so look, there's confusion about what the name actually is. There's confusion about how it's spelled. There's confusion about how it's pronounced. And there's confusion about whether or not we should even say it out loud. Jews said no. Early Christians said no. And so now people call it the Tetragrammaton. <laughs> Theologians, man, uh, that's not the name of a transformer. That's the name of God, Tetragrammaton. And there is almost endless debate about whether or not we should try to pronounce it or not. Not clear what it means, not clear how it's pronounced, not clear whether or not we should even say it. So how helpful is that? If the name is confusing and controversial, how can we really know that God? How can we really call him by name? So years after this, listen to what the author of Hebrews says, the book of Hebrews. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Pause. Various ways, meaning things like a burning bush that doesn't burn up. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. Listen now. The sun is the radiance of God's glory 
and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. There's all kinds of speculation about how to pronounce the I am. There is no speculation in how to pronounce Jesus. God has revealed himself to to us in a way that is far more clear and far more direct than he revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. And this is another, another piece of scripture that reminds us to stop chasing the burning bush moments to stop chasing the miracles. He has spoken to us through the prophets, but now he has spoken to us clearly. He has revealed himself clearly through Jesus. Jesus drew near the very character of God, the exact representation of his being in Christ. God came down and God came near and and he has explained perfectly what it means that God's name is I am. In the book of John, Multiple times, seven times throughout his ministry, Jesus will refer to himself as I am. It's one of the strongest claims to divinity in the whole New Testament. Jesus' repeated reference of himself as I am. And then he puts these other descriptors on the end that help flesh out and explain to us what does it mean that God's name is I am. So, so listen, in John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. What does it mean that the I am is the bread of life? It means Christ sustains us. This is exactly what Hebrew said, that he sustains the whole universe. Christ sustains us. He draws near and carries us physically, spiritually, emotionally, all that we are every moment. If you are here right now, you are being sustained by the bread of life. He is holding you together. John chapter 8. I am the light of the world. Christ, the I am, is leading us to a city on a hill. He is coming and bringing clarity to the world's confusion. Where there is chaos, the I am comes and brings order. Where there is darkness, the I am draws near and he brings light. John 10 verse 7, I am the door of the sheep. He is the gateway through which we enter into safe pastures. If you long for safety, for peace, it's found by entering in through the door that is Christ. The I am draws near to his beloved people to bring us somewhere safe and beautiful. John 10, 11, a few verses later, he says, I am the good shepherd. The I am does not send us out alone. He sojourns with us. He travels with us. He draws near and leads us as one of us. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Death no longer gets the final word in our lives. The I am does. And so he draws near with the promise of life and resurrection. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The I am draws near and brings direction to our waywardness, truth to our lies, life to our death. And so we follow him as he leads us. John 15, I am the true vine. He is the source of life and the road to human flourishing. The road to peace is through a vital, abiding connection with Christ himself. He is the source of our life and our flourishing and abiding in him is the way in which we come alive. Jesus explains what it means that God's name is I am. And now because of Christ, because we know his true name, we can know God. 
the God who sustains, the God who clarifies, the God who protects, the God who leads, the God who resurrects. Maybe you need to go back and read all those I am statements and just consider what does this mean for me in my life? But the point is, Christ has made it clear that we can know the I am, and in fellowship with the I am, we will find peace, not in changed circumstances, but in deep abiding relationship with Christ. Not changed circumstances, fellowship with the I am. He knows your name, he knows your pain, and he draws near to you. He gives you his name, and in the life of Christ, we see he chooses to carry your pain. And I, this is why I think that revelation in the burning bush is so profound. God didn't have to make us capable of knowing him. Whoever says the infinite almighty creator God should be noble by his creatures at all? And yet there is a condescension there that God would come and make himself knowable. And the ultimate condescension is him becoming a little baby. And I just wonder, this gets me a little wound up, you guys. I'm sorry. I know it's a small room and it's cold and we're in Avon. I'm still wound up right now. There's so much energy spent in our church and in the church broader in America that's focused on changing circumstances. And some of them are circumstances that we really hope to see changed. But we think that will be the road to the kingdom of God. We think that is the goal of the Christian life, to get busy getting stuff done for God. And I wonder what would happen if even a small group of Christians, and they're out there, I'm thinking about here in this church, in this city, in this place, if a small group of us shifted the focus of our Christian life away from changing circumstances, away from doing things for God, and we made it our aim to know Christ and experience the power of his resurrection. With everything Paul did, with all the churches he planted and all the miracles and all the ministry that he did, he says it real plainly. His aim was to know Christ and experience the power of his resurrection. What if we stopped looking for God out there when life is better and started looking for him right here, right now, even when life is not as we want it to be? What if we made it our aim in our Christian life to know Jesus and to experience fellowship with the I am through him? We've been trying to do this for years as a church. This is not some radical new shift in, in direction. Maybe you're like, I've heard this sermon before, and I've preached this sermon before, and you're going to hear two tools that we've referenced before, and maybe you've used them and, and maybe not. Um, I've had several conversations in the last week after the the first sermon in this Advent series, where multiple people have basically said, it sounds good when you say experience the presence of God, but what in the world does that mean? Uh, one guy was like, it sounds so mystical and supernatural. And I was like, yep, <laughs> kind of like a bush that's on fire and doesn't burn up. You know, if we're having a relationship with the creator God who exists and holds the whole universe together every moment of every day and all the worlds around the galaxies, it will probably be different than our relationship with our Uncle John or, or whatever. It is, it is inherently mystical. It is inherently supernatural. And it requires some different kinds of disciplines than many of us are used to. And so we have all of these tools that we've provided on various topics at the church called field guides. And they're not intended to be like deep dive studies that answer every question. They're intended to be things that you use out in the field. So they're short, practical how-tos on various topics that we think are important in the life of our church. They're all free. They've been written by our pastors. Two that I think are really helpful for this conversation. Um, one, it's called Taste, How to Encounter God in the Bible. 
The second is called Listen, How to Hear the Voice of God. And so this is a screenshot of your app. If you have the Sojourn Collective app, we're not doing hard copies of stuff right now. Uh, you can open up the media tab, go to Sojourn Field Guides. They're free and they're right there. So how to encounter God in the Bible? Taste. That's a way of reading the Bible to foster communion with Christ. Most of us read the scriptures for content. And so you come here and you're like, oh, he says something about the angel of the Lord. So I'm going to go read the Bible and find every instance of the angel of the Lord and figure out what that means and where and why and all this stuff. And that's good. Absolutely read the Bible for content. Understand why is Mount Sinai important? Why is Mount Horeb important? Understand all this stuff. It's very, it's very important. But there is also another way of reading the scriptures that is more around fostering connection with the presence of Christ. And it's a different approach than the other. And we need to learn how to do both of them. So taste will help you. We'll give you some steps to start reading the scriptures in a new way that will foster a greater sense of Christ's nearness to you. And then listen will... Um, press into our prayer lives to help us do more than just ask God for stuff. Of course, he's a good father, and, and we're right in asking him for things. We're, we're right to ask him to change our circumstances. There's nothing wrong about that. But again, imagine a conversation or a relationship with somebody where one person does all of the talking. Maybe you have a relationship with someone where they call you, and they talk for 45 minutes, and they say, it's nice talking to you, and they hang up, and you didn't say a word. There's not much relationship there. And many of us go through the rhythms of the Christian life for 30 or 40 years, and God still feels like a stranger because we never learned how to listen and hear the voice of God. So listen, how to hear the voice of God is a field guide to help us recognize God's presence and pray in a new way that we might experience his nearness. The point in all of this is we are invited to know a God who knows our name, who knows our pain, and has given us his name. And you think about the condescension here, the, the coming down, the, the laying down of his rights and his authority and his privilege. The king got off the throne to be born in the dirt, to be, to be born, in essence, in a stable. This God who told Moses his name now allows a teenage girl named Mary to give him his name. He lays down his rights and his power and his authority to come and live among us and show us what it means that we are, that he is the I am. So now we as his people, we don't have to look for burning bushes anymore. We don't have to look for wild miracles anymore. We just have to look for the baby boy in the manger. We have to strive to experience the presence of Christ. We know his name and he has drawn near to us. So we make it our aim to experience his presence what might it look like, even, if, even just for the next few weeks of Advent, if you started shifting a little bit in your thinking, instead of focusing on what you want to change or what needs to be different, if you started trying to find evidence of God's nearness to you and made it your goal and your desire to experience Him? I know life is hard. I know a lot of us are facing new challenges in many ways. I know I certainly am. And it can be hard to see evidence of God's nearness. And it's why it's such a gift to be able to gather together because every week we get concrete evidence of God's nearness to us in communion. And so we remember the night he was betrayed. Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Don't you love the, the wonderful ordinariness of this? God comes to Moses while he's at work. He comes to us every week through simple elements like a loaf of bread. After the meal, in the same way, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is the blood of my new, or this is the cup of my new relationship with you, sealed with the shedding of my blood. Drink this and remember what I've done for you. 
Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android, where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.